from the Hamptons Winners Only Club, Lulu Romano. Hello and welcome to another episode of Winners Only Club, the number one podcast in the Hamptons and beyond. Today we have the privilege, pleasure, and honor to chat with Laura Grenning. She is the owner of Grenning Gallery in Sag Harbor and a bunch of other properties. <laughs> <laughs> Quick、um, background: She was in finance before doing the fine arts. Everyone, welcome Laura Grenning. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> hi. Did I miss anything for your intro, or would you like to add to it? No, I think that's good. Thanks. Today we are in her gallery at Twenty Six Main Street. Tell us a little bit about how you got here. Oh wow.、Um, well, I've I've had a gallery in Sag Harbor for twenty four years now. This is my let's see one two three. This is my fourth location,、um, and my absolute favorite. <laughs> As an interviewer, I'm always interested in hearing how things got started. Here's Laura, essentially taking us into a time machine and sharing with us how she got the ball rolling.、Um, I、uh, started the gallery a few years after I got back from Asia,、um, and、um, I basically started the gallery more from the artist's perspective. Not so much from the client's perspective. I wanted to find a, and create a market for artists that were、um, going back and researching the old masters techniques. What does that mean exactly? Old masters technique. Well, I came of age in the seventies and eighties, and I always loved painting and drawing, and I've always been really responsive to art.、Um, just a little anecdote: when when we went to see clients in Europe, and we went to Paris. All of my other colleagues would go shopping or out for food, and I'd go immediately to the Louvre.、Um, and when I left my job in New York, I had six weeks before I flew to Hong Kong. I went to the Metropolitan Museum every single day and took all of those like tours that they offer. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get enough of painting and art.、Um, and so when I got back from Asia, I took, I, I. Um, actually, Nelson White and I—I I met him on the beach. He was painting, and I walked up to him and said, "I've always wanted to know how to paint. Will you teach me?" And he kind of brushed me off, and then he agreed if I would do a few drawings, he would agree to then teach me how to paint. And I showed him a few drawings, and he was like, "Oh, oh!" <laughs> and so he took me under his wing, and for two years, I learned how to plein air paint American Impressionist style. And then he recommended that I go. I wanted to get some more. Skills that were、um, a little weightier instead of just painting out of doors, and he recommended that I go to a classical atelier in Italy. And there were two, there were three at the time, and he recommended the Florence Academy of Art. So I went there and studied. I met all these amazing artists. I learned more in one week there than I had learned in all my art classes up till that point in my life. And from that,、um, I just realized the good news and the bad news. The good news was that the great paintings that I had so loved in all these museums were 100% doable in today's age. The bad news was it was going to take eight to ten years of full-time study to acquire the skill and the craft that I had so loved. So instead, you did something 
very very smart i don't know if i've ever spoken to you about this ladies and germs hang on tight because you're about to hear one hell of a story we did an episode with one of your one of the artists you represented uh ben fensky yeah he told me he was like oh laura she's uh, she's a smart cookie i was like what, what do you mean and then he told me the story where back in the day you literally took a trip to italy to scout talents like budding talents he was just like a plain old boy learning some uh painting in college and you were like Psst, you know, come back with me to the Hamptons and I'll sell your paintings. Is that how it happened or how did so, it happen? So Ben, I actually wanted to do a documentary film. That's why I know what B-roll is. I, um, I hired a film crew and I got about 50 hours of, and I still have it and I haven't done anything with it. Maybe you can help me. Mm. I got 50 hours of footage in Italy and also in New York and New York City um, of the artists that were at the forefront of this revival of classical painting. There's an atelier in New York called Jacob Collins. Uh, it was Jacob Collins School. It was called the Water Street Atelier. It's now called Grand Central Academy. And I filmed in um, in his studio. I filmed in um, Stephen Assel's studio. He's a top painter in New York now. Um, I filmed in all of the great, in actually the three different uh, classical ateliers in Italy. What happened to the documentary? You know, I, the money to finish the documentary went into my divorce. <laughs> and I put it in a box. In fact, I found the box in a, in a recent move. I've got all of the... I would love to see that. Well, it's all on tape. This is back in 2000. It's like film? Yeah, yeah. no, little tapes, little, oh. little digital tapes mm-hmm. before we were fully digital. It was 2004, I think. And what would the name of the documentary be? I thought it was going to be Get Real. Because it was about realism and figuration coming back into the art world. And in that one, at one point, there were all these first year art students who were walking in the door and I was literally grabbing them with a microphone and getting them on film. And I interviewed um, Ben Fenske. (laughs) And he was like 20 years old, but he still looked like an old man at 20. Did he have hair back then? (laughs) He had a lot of hair. And, and he, he, but he still had the, he still had that kind of grumpy old man yeah. um, bearing. Like dad bod. Yeah. But he's uh, always been a very, very talented, very focused, very bright, creative painter. This reminds me of a funny conversation I had with Ben around this exact same time last year. I asked him, I was like, what would you be doing if Laura never discovered you? He thought about it for a second. He goes, Probably kill myself. <laughs> oh, well, that's a, that's a vote of confidence. You know what? He comes from a family um, in Minnesota, in a small town in Minnesota, where there, I think his his family um, they were tradesmen, and they weren't. They, I mean, he told me that he hid in the basement and drew, and he hid all of his drawings because the, it was like completely out of nowhere in their little subculture. And they didn't really understand him, is my guess. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, but he, uh, when I met him, he was just doing little, I mean, he was, a fr- he was a first year student. It takes four years to get through the Florence Academy. And I think he left after that first year because he was so, he wanted to paint all day long out of doors. And it's very rigorous, very refined, that training. And some would argue, in fact, most of the art education in the last 60 years in America has been leaning against this idea of acquiring skill because they think it will kill your creativity. 
And I believe that I want it all. I want, I call it body, mind, and soul. Body, mind, and soul. Here's Laura talking about how each of these elements play in the role of art. Body is craft. I want very well-crafted paintings that are going to last. Mind is the concept, the abstract concept of why you're making this painting and what it's about. And soul is that je ne sais quoi, you know, that emotional um, response that you get, which um, Ben has all three all the time. You know, and you know how you asked me about winners and losers? Mm-hmm. Real quick, guys, we did a segment right before this where we kind of copied Zach Galifianakis between two fern styles. If you're listening to this right now, you can go on YouTube and check that out for an LOL. <laughs> continue, please. Um, um, the winning painters are the ones who are painting only really what inspires them. And all of Ben's paintings, even though the subject matter looks very different, sometimes it's a figure, sometimes it's a still life, sometimes it's a landscape. Almost, I mean, all of them are inspired by a light effect that caught his eye and he wanted to capture with paint. And so there's a certain um, verve, there's, a, there's an energy there. And I look for that in all my painters. This, I learned, has a lot to do with her upbringing. I grew up in a time where anything could be priced at anything. People were throwing paint at the, you know, there was no level of craft. And I took art classes. I was a mostly scholarship kid at my university, at Denison University. And I took a few art classes, but it was such a waste of my money because it was, there was no craft being imparted. It was kind of like, you know, paint the tree purple. It was just like, whatever. And that's why you went to finance. I went to finance to pay off my student loans. <laughs> but I have a degree in economics, and I'm fascinated with... Um, I have a little bit of a thing in my head. I'm really interested in valuation. And valuation is, what is something worth? Speaking of evaluation, here's more on finance and how it applies to the stock market. In the stock market world, I was a value, I was a stock analyst. My job was to find value for my investors. And I kind of went the Warren Buffett route. There's lots of different ways of picking stocks, but I always, I'm a fundamentalist and I believe that the value, um, the value of the stock will come out in the wash. So how many people are buying it and if it's on Reddit, I mean, that's all great, but you can never time that well. If you buy a stock that's got good cash flow um, and a good internal rate of return, you, you only have to look at it occasionally. You know, I don't, I don't believe in buying, chart, buying on a chart or, or because someone told you to. <laughs> There's ways of analyzing the, the value of a stock so that you know it, you're getting a good a good price. What about those stocks where you buy a bundle in one? Buy a bundle in one? Yeah, like you buy... Oh, you're talking about an ETF. ETF. So ETFs is a great way if you have a strong idea of the sector in the economy that you think is going to go, that's going to perform well. And there's lots of choices, you know, there's... there's traditional ideas of how to invest in different sectors at different times in the economy. Um, And so uh, if you have a pretty clear idea and you don't really want to pick stocks because that's kind of time consuming, it's a very efficient way of getting equity exposure without getting into the weeds. So how does that work? You just give your money to someone? 
<laughs> um, no, you don't give your money to someone. You can get a Schwab account or a Fidelity account, and you can you have your money in a cash, and then you can digitally you can just say, I want an ETF for tech stocks, and an ETF is an exchange traded fund, so it's kind of like buying the index, but you're buying an index that's specific for that type of business. What about what is an R E I T? A REIT is a um, Uh, it is a real estate equity investment trust. Real estate, I don't know what the E is exactly, but okay. it's, a, it's a trust where you buy like a share in a company that invests in lots of properties. And they have different kinds. Some is commercial real estate. Some is, um, uh, you know, um, apartment blocks. There's different types of REITs. And what website do you go on to invest in that? Well, I, I think whoever you, you have your investment account with, um, one of the advantages of going with Fidelity is they have a big research house. Like that's those were my counterparts when I was an expert, quote unquote, in um, Southeast Asian financial stocks. That's what I ended up becoming an expert in. I would go talk to the Fidelity um, investors, the team of investors that were investing in stocks in Asia. And um, I would talk to them. And so they're the receivers of all of the sell-side analysts. They're the buy-side analysts. But they're going to they're gonna publish um, things probably online. If you're at Fidelity or Schwab, they'll publish some research. Schwab is almost like no cost. I mean, with Fidelity, I don't know what, it's very low cost. I mean, the, the industry has really been disintermediated, which means lots and lots of competition have come in and pushed the margins down. Um, I don't know um, how much they're spending now on research, but you can get information, like you can research stocks yourself. I didn't fully understand the jargons she was using, so I decided to ask her in another way. Okay, if a completely new investor gets $10,000, let's say cash, what do you think is the best way to invest it for passive income? Well, if you're young, you don't want passive income from your equity investments. You want to buy Um, growth stocks because you're young and $10,000 now could be a million dollars in 10 years if you buy a growth stock and you have the 10 years. Somebody who's in their 60s or 70s is going to be looking for income. So um, they're going to be looking at bonds or you know corporate bonds that are yielding 5% or 6% or municipal bonds which won't be taxed. A lot of them are not taxed and so that's an income from your money. But if you're young You, whatever you put in the stock market, you want to be thinking long-term. You don't ever want to invest in stocks if your horizon is shorter than three years. By the way, we are not sponsored by Fidelity or Schwab. <laughs> When you were in China, what was an interesting trend that you found or trends you found while working with the Asian market? Well, I remember when I first got there, I, you know, I, I covered for, at Goldman Sachs where I worked in New York. When I got there, I was given the worst stocks. I was working at a small company called Smith New Court. I was the only non-Asian in the research department and I was studying Chinese. Um, but they all spoke Chinese all around me. It was interesting. Can so you I, say some Chinese? Cantonese. Oh, Cantonese. Um, some, um, something about America? Mm. I am American. Oh, okay, gotcha. Koi Ho Leng. She's pretty. Oh, you probably heard that a lot, right? Bindoa toilet. Bindoa toilet. Toilet? Where is the toilet? Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Anyhow, those are the most important things you need to know. <laughs> and what was interesting in Hong Kong is I was studying Cantonese, mm -hmm. and in the same um, language school, all the local Chinese were studying Mandarin. Because mm. this is towards the end of the British rule. Local Chinese were studying Chinese? Mandarin. Because Cantonese is a different language from right. Mandarin, and the Mandarin Chinese speakers were coming to take over China, uh, Hong Kong. Were you in any revolutions? No. I got to Hong Kong about six months after Tiananmen Square. Laura then continues to talk about the milieu of Hong Kong when she first arrived, as well as um, the use of uh, her calculator. In June of, of 89. What was the spirit like then? Hong Kong was very depressed when I got yeah. there. And it so was, I traveled all around China. And, no, it wasn't most of the time I was there. It was like the Roaring Twenties. But one of the trends that I spotted um, in, right when I got there is I started doing the... I had a calculator called an HPC3, I think it is. But it was the calculator that all the CFAs in New York use, the stock analysts. And you could put in... You could figure out the net present value of your stocks and um, of, of your cash flow. And that, that's one way of looking at valuation. It's a way of um, algorithmically removing the risk-free rate. It's kind of complicated, but anyhow, I couldn't believe it. I, I thought my calculator was broken because the stocks were so attractive. When I shifted away from, I, they gave me the spinners and the weavers, which were in the garment industry in Hong Kong, which was, which was dying, and they weren't doing well. Um, all that business was moving into China and over to Malaysia and Vietnam and whatnot. But the financial stocks, which was the other thing they gave me, uh, I, they were growing at 40% a year and they were selling at only two times earnings. I literally changed the batteries in my calculator because I thought there was a mistake. <laughs> and when I realized that, I became a big buyer of the financial stocks and I recommended that to all my clients. And I was only 25 years old, 26 years old. But I was really, I couldn't believe how well the banks were doing. And that was, uh, that was like a leading indicator to what was happening in Asia. Do you still have those stocks now? I, I bought Hong Kong Shanghai Bank at $7, Hong Kong dollars, which was about a dollar US. And in early, in, in like the late 90s, I sold it at $270. Dollars or Hong Kong dollars? Hong Kong dollars. Oh, so okay. I made good money, seven to 270. That's a whopping 3,700% increase in conversion rate. Yet, Laura says it's not the most effective way to make money. The way that I made the most money was, and this was, would be like my advice to young people, if you're, if you're really into what you're doing, try to own it. It's, it's scarier, but you are then a principal and you're more, more careful about how you spend your money and your time. And I ended up uh, moving from Smith New Court over to Credit Lyonnaise Securities Asia. They paid me pretty well, but not as well as the Americans were going to pay me, but they gave me a couple percentage points of the brokerage firm. So I ended up owning a couple percentage points of the firm that I was at. And the firm was growing at 80 to 90% a year. So whatever they made, you made a percentage? Yeah, which is always nice. And that's, and that, I mean, I guess that, that's what one of the things I learned in Asia or that I saw in Asia. Being in an environment that's got 10% real growth, which means, you know, taking inflation out, the economies were growing at 10 to 15% around me. A lot of people, I mean, that's great. After leaving New York in 1989, was still really depressed from the crash in 87. And the property market in New York bottomed, I think, in 92, 93. Um, that's when I bought my house on Shelter Island. 
But I didn't know it was the bottom. I just wanted a house on Shelter Island. But the, the house that I bought was half what it was four years earlier. The thing that, um, that I think is really important is to, is if you possibly can, be a principal in your life. Like, own it. So that's why starting my own business was much more appealing than going back to work for somebody else when I finally left Asia. The more we speak, the more I realize that, hey, maybe this woman has it all figured out from the beginning. I graduated on Saturday at 4 p.m. and I was working at Goldman at 7 a.m. Monday morning. I got my job at Goldman a few months before, got it. before I left college. Got it. And then you went back to art. It's about like what I admire in the great painters like Ben Fenske. Um, and I would say Darius Yektai and I mean, all of my painters is, um, it's what inspires me. I mean, I, I come in to work and I don't even want them to sell because I like these paintings so much. Some of them, it hurts me to, to sell some of them because I know over the course of like, because I'm so into art history over the course of, of time that the, that these are going to be very valuable. So part of it is like a value thing, but the other part is I don't want that painting to go away from me. I like it. <laughs> What's a risk that you took that was really rewarding? Well, I think leaving my job on Wall Street to move to Hong Kong, I just quit and moved. So how did you nobody get transferred me there. How did you get a job? Oh, you got a job once you got there? Yeah. Well, nice. yeah, yeah, that is what happened. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like especially back then, because I feel like it's more common now for people to yeah, go yeah. places. Hong Kong was very, very, very far away from New York in 1989. Just how did a young woman go from New York to Hong Kong more than three decades ago when the Far East was an unfamiliar place? Here she tells the sequence of events in detail. So there were three of us at Goldman that were all assistants in the same department, and one of us was a guy named David Coetz, and he um, had a girlfriend from his year abroad in England, and she was in Hong Kong, so he went to Hong Kong to be with her. And he called us and said, oh my God, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. There's nobody with CFA training. CFA is Chartered Financial Analyst, Chartered Financial Analyst. And so I had a business trip to Australia, and I called the company that was sending me there. It was Pacific Dunlop, was in Australia, and they had just sold the cochlear, which is the ear implant to make people hear, to Medtronic. And I covered Medtronic from in New York. And my boss was like eight months pregnant and see, she couldn't go on the trip to Australia. So at 23 or 24 years old, she's like, will you go? And I'm like, hell yes. To Australia. Yeah. So she sent me to Australia and I called Pacific Dunlap and I said, do you mind if you route me through Hong Kong? Well, nobody bothered to tell me, you know, over here, we're not big on geography. <laughs> I had no idea how far it took, how far the flight was from Sydney to Hong Kong. And I got in the plane when it was time to leave Sydney and I fell asleep in business class, you know, feeling like the big shit, you know, this 24 year old kid. And I had never left the country before, by the way, I had to get a passport for this trip. And um, I fell asleep and I woke up two hours later and I looked out the window and there was land down there. And I thought, you know, Hong Kong's, you know, it looks like it's right there, right? And I said to the guy, what, what land is that? And he's like, that's Australia, honey. <laughs> I'm like, what? I was like, how long does it take to get to Hong Kong? And he's like, nine hours. We're, we've got another seven hours of flying. I'm like, 
holy moly. <laughs> from Sydney yeah. to Hong Kong for my, on my way home mm-hmm. from this business trip when I was 24. And I interviewed with some headhunters when I was there. And then I quit my job and went back and got a job at Smith Newcourt. What is a piece of advice that has stuck by you through the hard times and through times where you maybe weren't so sure of yourself? Hmm. And there has been plenty, you know, plenty of tough times. Um, You know, I think the best advice that I ever got was um, that, you know, we're all just winging it, you know, we're we're just winging it. And there's no big report card in the sky. Everybody's winging it, no matter what they're doing. And... um, that made me take myself a little less seriously. And whatever circumstance I, I thought was going to kill me or, you know, nothing. It's just not, you know, we're just, we're all just bozos on the bus. So the name of this podcast is called Winners Only Club. What's your definition of a winner and what's your definition of a loser? Uh, my definition of a winner is somebody who's spending their time engaged in whatever it is that is their passion. And whether you're doing it for a living or you you have a job that allows you to pursue your passion, whatever it is. But the closer you are to that, when you're doing something and you're not looking at the clock, that's your thing, you know? And those are the winners. I think the losers are the people that get really, um, they absorb an external idea of success and they're on the treadmill really trying to get there. And I, I guess the reason I say that is I was the biggest winner, quote unquote, of that stock game. And I was very, very unhappy at the end. And that's why I left. I, even though my outside was big winner, the inside was miserable because I wanted to be in the fresh air. I wanted to be around art. I wanted to, you know, go running on the beach or in the woods every day. It's hard to do that in Hong Kong when you're working 10, 12-hour days. Few people realize 70% of Hong Kong's land is country park. It's, it's the new territory. But how far would it be to go from your office to the country park? Very interesting question. And you could walk into a jungle path within 50 yards of your apartment block. And you're, the, Hong Kong is very steep and... Um, you can get to a pathway that goes through the jungle jungle really quickly. And you can hike around and not even see anybody. Even though like 3 million people live on Hong Kong Island, I could go hiking for 50 minutes and not pass anybody because nobody else is doing it. (laughs) They're all shopping. (laughs) And here's what's happening now. What is the best and worst part of being a gallery owner in the Hamptons? Okay, the worst part is I work weekends. So that hasn't been great, you know, because generally up until the last two or three years before COVID, most of the clients were coming through on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. So I've missed Saturday and Sunday afternoons with family, you know, and loved ones for 24 years. Um, The best thing is somebody is on their way to the grocery store to buy a loaf of bread and they'll decide to buy a $10,000 painting you know, and that wasn't, by the way, that wasn't the case 20 years ago when I started. Um, and it is now the case. And, I, you know, we're just, it's just lucky that we're here while this is all happening. Right. Because 20 years ago, Sag Harbor wasn't exactly part of the Hamptons. It was kind of the Unhamptons. It was the Unhamptons. Yeah. Sag Harbor was the cheapest rent in all of the Hamptons. When I set up my gallery. More I, than Springs? 
there's no retail in Springs. When oh, I was looking right. to set up the gallery, East Hampton was five times the rent of Sag Harbor and all the galleries, quote unquote, were in East Hampton. Um, and so I got the back, you know where the grocery section is at Provisions? Now or? Right now. Yep. That, that um, was my first gallery. And it was a spa after me and then Provisions took it over. Um, but that was like $2,000 a month or something, which I only know now was pretty expensive for what, what I could have gotten on Main Street. But it was available. I liked the landlord and the landlord's still a friend of mine today. That's cool. You're also a landlord yourself, right? Yeah, so um, I kind of, you know, I think very long-term or whatever. I'm always playing the long game. Um, and uh, I could see many, many years ago that the Sag Harbor was really heating up in the early 2000s. And an opportunity came up to buy a building. It was on Washington Street. It wasn't ideal, but it was a building that also had an apartment upstairs. And I was a single mom. And I thought, oh, I could... Katie could be upstairs and I could be working downstairs. And that's exactly what happened. I had my gallery in that space for, um, for nine years. And in 2018, Granin Gallery moved to its current location. If you weren't doing this right now, what would you be doing? I'd probably be painting and writing. Those are like things that I just, you know, business has gotten so good. Um, but I still... You know, I, I take the dog for, I do what I what I came here to do. Zola. I take Zola, who, I don't know where she went. Where'd she go? Anyhow, um, I take the dog for a good hour's run in the woods or on the beach. I swim. I sometimes ride my bike. I'm busy doing sports in the morning and a couple errands. And then I come in around 12 and I'm here till 5 or 6. Returning calls. I'm not so great with the technology, the emails and stuff. Um, I get too many emails to respond to a lot of them. <laughs> but, um, you know, if I had, uh, if, if I didn't have the gallery, I'd be doing my own art, I think, my own creative life. What are some of your plans for the future, whether it's immediate or, like you said, the long game, long term? Long game? I mean, one of the ideas would be to try to figure out a way of, of, cap, of um, systemizing what I've done here to share with other young women. It's a fabulous thing to own a gallery and be a single mom because you get to be part of your passion, but nobody really expects the gallery to be open 24-7. So you can hang the gone fishing sign if you have to go to your kid's thing, or you can bring children in, and it's a beautiful environment to raise children in. So I think for single mothers, um, uh, it's a, or for mothers, I think it's a great passion. And I, if I can figure out a way of franchising it, um, because I am pretty good at the business side and a lot of people who are interested in arts aren't. And so I would create like a, a centralized place where invoicing and all the bills get paid and all you have to do is sell paintings out of your franchise. So that's one big, big idea. Like 7-Eleven before galleries. Yeah, I don't know about 7-Eleven. <laughs> you know, I saw Calypso do it. Oh. Calypso had like 15 stores. Um, and so I'm, I, you know, that's like a dream. If I could actually sit down and write it out, write out the business plan, you know, I also, um, I do like property. So I'm taking some of my earnings and investing in properties. Um, I like to redo them and, um, I guess that's it. And for people who want to check out your gallery or maybe shoot you an email or find out more information about this gallery, where can they do that? Um, info at greninggallery.com, I-N-F-O. And greninggallery.com has a very extensive website. In fact, this is how we track our inventory. And so you can look at absolutely everything we have. You can, don't forget to 
click on the sold button and you can see the best works by our artists because they're hidden under the sold section. And uh, we did a lot of YouTube videos of walking around inside the gallery for all the different shows during COVID and we kind of fell off because we got so busy. Um, so I guess that's it. That just reminded me of another question. Has it ever been difficult to convince an artist to display their art in your gallery? At the very beginning, they thought I was like, wait, who are you? I'm like, look, I'm going to try. I don't know if it's going to work. But, and actually, Ramiro dove in the most. He handed me everything. He's like, you're just going to handle it for me. And he, for 10 years, was my top-selling artist. Why did he trust you? Um, I don't know. Je ne sais quoi. <laughs> because I'm trustworthy. I mean, that's one thing in my, in my industry. There's a lot of people that are in the art business that are in it for reasons that aren't, don't line up so much with the artist's desire to make money. Like what? A lot of people are in it so that they can have somewhere to go that's pretty. Some people are in it for the social outlet. They like the parties. They like meeting people who are around art. They like meeting the artists. They like meeting um, you know, people that are buying art, but they're not very interested in moving the paintings. But because this is my living, I make a living, I've done this for 24 years, and I have to pay the bills, and there's nobody else paying my bills. Um, there's a certain kind of fire in the belly that I have that is very similar to that of my artists because they need the money. In fact, that was the inspiration was to make sure that these artists that were getting armed with these incredible skills had enough money to stay focused on making art um, and not being distracted by like having to pay the bills. That was the, the original inspiration for the business. Thank you, Laura, for coming on my show. Oh, thank you for having me. And that's a wrap for today's Winners Only Club. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.